we began our, our teaching on the series uh, called Believe, as most of you have heard. And so we're going to explore what we believe, uh, who do we believe in, and why do we believe. But let me, let me take a moment as I set up the sermon series to say that we want it to be more than just information. I'm really praying that we can actually have an encounter with God through the course of our study. That we will learn not just to know more about God, but that we will have a, an opportunity to engage in God as, as a person who's alive and real, very actively involved in the affairs of this world, and, and frankly, involved in our lives as well. Belief. I was thinking this morning how that my perspective has changed over time. I'll give you a simple illustration of that. You know, truth is eternal, but perspective changes. We have to make sure we, we define that because reality is not only as I perceive it. Reality is what is true, and my perspective is how I perceive reality. When I was a younger man, I thought 50 was ancient. Now that I'm 61, I've shifted the scale slightly. So 65 is now ancient, just so <laughs> And I realized I passed this fault onto my children, my grandchildren. Some of you uh, perhaps have heard this story, but a few years ago, uh, we were in our living room and in, in our kitchen, and our grandkids were there visiting with us. And, and Jordan, my grandson, looked at this photograph. We, our, our fridge is covered with photos. How about yours? Artwork. It's a museum for our grandkids. And there was a photo there of my wife and I taken the day after our wedding. Now, my wife has not aged a second since we got married. 43 years, she still looks the same. How is that possible? I don't know. It's the gift of heaven, I suppose. But let's just say that I don't quite look the same. Perspective. My grandson looks up at this picture and said, Nana, that's you, but who's that with you? And my wife thought that was hysterically funny, and she began to laugh, and she said, well, that's Papa and I. That's Papa in the picture. And so, and so he says, Nana. He looked at the picture, and he looked at me, and he looked at the picture, and with all the concern that his little voice could muster, he said, Papa, what happened to you? <laughs> Everything in me wanted to say it was your mother when she became a teenager. And I thought that would not be the right thing to say because I'm a loving father and a loving grandfather. Just perspective. Truth is truth. But how do we perceive truth? How do we engage truth? How does it change us? We have to understand that God is, is constantly working in our lives to help us understand who he is and what he wants to do, both in our lives and through our lives. So what do we believe about God? Well, this morning in the, the adult Sunday school class, Monique did a beautiful job of talking about the Trinity. We believe we have one God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three in one, unique but inseparable, constantly working. And we see from Scripture that all three were involved from the very beginning of time in creation. In Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, the very first verses of our Bible, it says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. In the beginning God. In the beginning Elohim is the word that's used here. And this literally means the strong one, the mighty leader, the supreme deity. But Elohim is plural. It's not singular. So it communicates right from the very first book, the very first chapter of the Bible that we see a, a snapshot of a, a, the Holy Spirit through his word is baiting us to understand that God and three persons was involved in creation. The Spirit of God was hovering, it says, over the waters. God the Father creating, 
spirit hovering. And then we see in John chapter 1, Gospel of John, says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. The Word speaking of Jesus, the incarnate Word of God, the, the, the message of God's love to us, the Word Jesus was with God, and the Word was God. Categorically, Jesus is God. And the scripture goes on and says that he was there in the beginning. Through him all things were made, and without him there was nothing made that was made. Scripture tells us that Jesus was the word that made flesh and dwells among us. We see that Jesus participated in the creation, that he was participatory. He was there as part of the Trinity. He is God at work in our lives. The Trinity, let me just tell you where I want to go with this. They were active from the beginning, and they're active still today. They want to participate actively in the creation of who we become and the people that we are. God wants to use you. Can I maybe say it a little different, perhaps? God wants to mess with your life. He wants to, he wants to have a, a part to play. God's plan for us is immensely better than our plan for ourselves. I hope you agree with me in that. that. That we think we know what's best for us, and we try to play God, but how has that worked for you? My best life is a life that's surrendered to the Lordship of Christ. I'm convinced of that. God at work in creation, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, God at work in Steve's life. This little bit of his creation, this microcosm of creation that I am, that you are. God at work in our lives. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But, but what is God like? We, we all like something visible to inspire our devotion. I, I, I don't know how that works for you, but I stand outside and I love the mountains. If I can get above tree line and I can see forever, creation inspires me to worship. We're all built like that. We're all built to, to be inspired by beauty. But the Jewish people were forbidden to create any graven image, any carved images, any chiseled images that would become a focus of their worship. You will have no other gods before me. You shall make no graven images. Categorically, no, full stop. Why? The nations, the pagan nations around Israel would create a god of their own imagination. They would set up that idol and they would worship it. And God said, don't do it. Because he knew that the propensity within every one of us to, to be drawn towards something that we can see. And he was invisible. God is invisible. He's everywhere at the same time. And yet, where is he? And how do you define what he looks like? The Jewish people, what they did is that they succumbed historically over and over, every generation it seems, to the worship of uh, gods that were visible, small g gods that were visible, idols. Because it was easier. How do you describe mystery? How do you describe something you can't see with your eyes? How do you describe a God that is everywhere at the same time, but he's here right now with us? How do you describe a God that was active in history, and yet he's active today in my life, and he's concerned about every little detail? Like, mystery. There are some Jewish theologians that talk about Yahweh, the unpronounceable name of God, which they would not say. And they say one of the reasons why it's unpronounceable is that it communicates that God is mysterious. He's beyond finding out. That's the God that we serve. Think about it for a minute. Do you want a God that conforms with your understanding? Do you want to, or do you want a God that's beyond your ability to conceive of? I'm looking forward to being in eternity with the Lord and every day with the elders gathered around the throne, falling down and saying, holy, holy. Why do they say holy? Well, some theologians believe that God reveals just a little bit more of who he is. And when he reveals a, some new aspect of his character or his deity, the elders fall down and say, 
holy. Can I use my translation? Wow, amazing, incredible for eternity. Beyond finding out. Your God is really big. And we tell our kids, my God is so big, so strong, and so. There is what? Nothing my God cannot do for you and you. In our, uh, in our adult minds, now that we're all grown up now, do you believe it? That's who he is. He's bigger than our ability to conceive. And from the very beginning, he said, okay, how do you describe God? There's an interesting illustration of a group of blind men that were led into a room, and they were told they, they had to describe an elephant that was in the room. Every one of them were led to a different part of the elephant. So one of the men were, was led, this blind man was led up to the, and he was, he was directed to the leg of the elephant. And he goes, okay, okay. And he felt the leg. He says, okay, I know what an elephant is like. It's rough and strong. It's like the trunk of a tree. Another blind man was led to the ear, and he felt this ear. And he said, oh, no, no, you're wrong. An elephant is like a piece of canvas. It's like a sail that blows in the wind. Another blind man was led up to the side of the elephant and touched the flank of the elephant. No, you're all wrong. It's firm and solid like a wall, strong, immovable. Someone else was led up to the tail. That poor guy got the tail. Anyway, he's got this tail. I just had a mental picture of that. He said, no, it's sinewy and strong like a rope. Can't you see it bends just like a rope? Then another man was led to the trunk, and he's feeling this trunk, and he says, no, no. He said, it's, it's, it's like a hose, it's hollow, it's long, and it's movable. Every one of them were accurate within the scope of their experience and within the scope of their understanding. That's the point. But they weren't complete in their picture, were they? One guy had the ear, another guy had the tail, another guy had the leg. But every one of them had a different perspective of what God was like. But they were accurate within a, a point. I hope that by the time we get to the end of this series, we'll have a clear and a better idea of who God is and who God is to every one of us. Jesus, the scripture tells us in Colossians chapter uh, 1, verses 15 and following, that Jesus came to show us the Father. You see, God did not leave us or the Jewish people with this vague picture of what God could be like, but he actually gave us a picture. Scripture says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the church, the body. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. To him in all th- are all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, and by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. See, in this picture, what we see is the Father sent Jesus to be the visible representation of the, of the invisible God. The picture is this, that when we look at Jesus, we have a good picture of who the Father is. God didn't leave us uh, unaware on, on, on of who he was. And Jesus himself says that I and the Father are one. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Actually, in chapter 2 and verse 9, it says this, For in Christ all the fullness of the deity dwelled in bodily form. In Christ, all of God 
was there in de- all the deity, all the power, all the strength, everything that God is, his character and his values and the purposes of God were expressed through Jesus Christ. You see, I think we should understand this dynamic. Even within our culture, it's hard to believe that in Jesus, this person was fully deity, fully man, fully God. And yet we kind of kind of get it a little bit because we would say things like this. We have these cliches. Perhaps you can help me. We would look at, we look at a young man and we say, hey, you're just a chip off the old block. Or maybe in, when we see someone misbehaving, we might say something like, boy, the apple doesn't fall far from the... Jesus said, if you see me, you see the Father. Or we would say something like this, like Father, like Son. See, we understand it to a, to a, in a microcosm here on our planet. But in this passage, we see that the character of Christ, his compassion, his teaching, his values, all reflected to us the image of the Father. If you see me, you see the Father. It's like Jesus said, look at me. If you see me, this is what God is like. Compassion and kind, healing. You see, because there were people within the Jewish hierarchy, even among the leadership, they were like the blind men with the elephant. They had a picture of what God was like that was inaccurate. That, and they believed, some of them, that if they were suffering from illness or sickness, that God was angry at them. Matter of fact, there was a tower that fell. A number of people were killed. Remember that story from the, from the Gospels? And, and some of the, of the disciples said, who sinned? This? And he said, no, no, no. They weren't any worse off. The people that were killed in that tragedy were not any worse off than other people. God doesn't punish us like that. You got it all wrong. God is compassionate, kind, and gracious, and merciful, and loving, and faithful. That's why it was easy for me to do that, because I, I have to remind myself of the character of God. So I will actually just, as part of my devotions, I will often just kind of quote the character of God as I know it. The characteristics of God. Loving, kind, compassionate, gracious, faithful, merciful, just. Why? Because sometimes I have, I'm like the blind man with the elephant. I don't see him clearly. And I need to remind myself the word of God is ultimate truth. And what God says about himself is what is true. In this passage in Matthew chapter 16 that uh, was read before as part of our scripture reading, it's an interesting story. This is the great story where, where Jesus turns to the disciples and, say, and says, who do men say that I am? Who do you say that I am? But let me give you the backdrop because we, we lose the, the, the beauty and the texture of this passage. This story uh, played out in Caesarea Philippi. That's about 25 miles north of the north end of the Sea of Galilee. And this community, this city, was built by Herod Philip, uh, who was the son of Herod the Great that killed the babies in Bethlehem, that guy. This was a son. And he, he was uh, the tetrarch over the northern part of the kingdom. He, this was his area of rulership. And he, he uh, built this place, this incredible city, this cosmopolitan city at the base of Mount Hermon because it was a desert area. Remember, Palestine is basically a desert. So he built this place at the bottom of Mount Hermon where there was a beautiful set of springs. And he built a city so that when his Uh, When the entourages would come from Rome and other parts of the Roman Empire, they could come to this beautiful getaway place, kind of like Camp Amadine or whatever, you know, a place that you can go away and just enjoy the the cool in the middle of the desert. But he wanted his guests, by the way, he he, he named it Caesarea Philippi, Caesarea after Caesar Augustus, and Philippi, well, after himself, of course. You have to name things after yourself, especially if you have a really big ego, ego and apparently... This guy had a really big ego. 
from history. We, we learn that. But he wanted to be able to entertain nobility and provide them with ex- excellent hospitality. So in addition to these beautiful structures he built, he also erected temples and idols that would represent all the different gods in the kingdom. And somewhere we have a slide of, of this. But Herod Phillips, god of choice, was Pan. He was a Greek, uh, out of Greek mythology, he was a god that was half goat and half man. He was a god of fright. Why would you pick the god of fright to worship, by the way? Pan, panic. That's where the word panic comes from for us. But that was his god of choice. And here we see some of the grottoes. And there were temples, of course, that are now demolished. But carved into the rock were grottoes, were different idols uh, for, for Pan and for Pan's father and for Pan's son that would be worshipped there. And you can't quite see it in, in the graphic, but there's a pit right here in the forefront. And that's where they would actually do human sacrifices. They would throw these people into the pit. Horrible. Horrible. And for the Jews, that was called the gate of Hades, or the gate of hell. For the Jewish mindset, this place, called Banias, this place, Caesarea Philippi, was the darkest, evil, most ungodly place in their entire kingdom. It's important to understand that. That Jesus took his disciples to this place. We don't see any record, that I could see anyway, of any miracles that were recorded there. So why did Jesus pack his guys 25 miles? Walking, by the way. To ask him a question. Who do you say that I am? Light shines brightest in the darkness. So it was against the backdrop of this that Jesus says, who do men say that I am? And they said, well, some of people say you're Elijah, Moses. Some of of the people say you're a prophet, a good prophet, a good teacher. Jesus said, who do you say that I am? And you know Peter's response, Simon's response was, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. Interesting backdrop. And Jesus responded by saying, your name is Peter, flesh and blood. Men didn't reveal this to you. This is my my language. You're not smart enough to figure that out on yourself, Peter. You know, God God must have expressed this to you. It must have been God that showed you this, that revealed this to you. He said, from now on, your name will be Peter, which means rock, Petro, or rock man. And upon this Petrus, upon this concept, Petrus is not a name, it's a feminine form of rock. Upon this statement of belief, the church will be built. Peter, on this Petro, on this Petrus, I will build my church. On this understanding of who God is, everything will be hinged. Why is it important to know who God is? Not just to know about him, but to experience him in your life. Because that's what your faith is built on. That's what my faith is built on. Frankly, it it really hasn't changed much over time, has it? Peter's response, my response, Romans chapter 10 verse 9 says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You see, throughout all history, it doesn't change. Confession and belief, confession and belief is the foundation of our faith of our salvation, and of our faith and our growth. This is incredibly important. And we see this from the very, very beginning when Jesus stood and said, who do you say that I am? But it's also interesting that he says, don't tell anybody. Like, that's, this is not really a central part of my message, but why did he say, like, he's just revealed himself as a Messiah in a very dark place. But why did Jesus say, don't tell anybody? You've got to remember the time they were, they were under Roman occupation. And the Romans had this little nasty habit 
of squelching any insurrection before it really got started. So if you start to set yourself up as God, see Caesar was God, and you were letting the word get out that you were the Messiah or the, the leader of the people, that was, you had a very short lifespan, just to say that. And it wasn't the time yet to doubt this kind, of, this kind of angst with the Roman government. So Jesus said, don't tell anybody. Not the time. Interesting little side note. Because sometimes I thought, Jesus just revealed this with, with all this crescendo, you know, the, with the high symbols are, shh. And then he says, shh, don't tell anybody. What's the reason for that? Then he says in Matthew 20, go tell everybody. Don't stop telling people because the time was right. So who is he? But who is he to me? In John chapter 5, we see this incredible story of the paralytic. Let's read that passage together. So sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for the feast of the Jews. Now there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool, which in Aramaic Aramaic is called Bethesda, which is surrounded by five columns covered colonnades. Here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. And there was one who had been there as an invalid for 38 years. By the way, the parallel passage says that occasionally the angel would come and stir the water and the first guy in got healed. That's the storyline here. But here's a man who had been an invalid for 38 years lying there at the pool. And Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he'd been in this condition for a long time. He said, do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the water when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. And then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. And once the man was cured, he picked up his mat and he walked. And the day on which this took place was a Sabbath. And so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it's a Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. And so they asked him, who is this fellow he replied, the man who made me well said, pick up your mat and walk. I mean, I just, I got healed. I just do what he said. That was good. And the, the leader said to him in verse 12, who is this fellow who told you to pick up and walk? And the man who was healed, he had no idea who it was, for Jesus has slipped away into the crowd that was there. Interesting storyline. Jesus slipped away into the crowd. Is it possible, perhaps for us, as we talk about who God is to me, is it possible that sometimes we can experience the benefit of the benefits of God and we really don't know him very well? That's a challenge. 38 years, this man had been a paralytic. We miss some of the, the, the richness in this passage because we don't know the history. The average lifespan of a Jewish male at the time of Christ was, guess, 38 years. So here's the interesting storyline. I mean, Scripture drops these little nuggets for us because it wants us to understand that some these insights, sometimes it can feel like we have been prayerfully waiting for God for our entire lives. you have anything like that that you're believing God for? I have a family member that I'm praying into the kingdom, but it's been a, they're 40-something years old now. Don't give up. Don't give up. Jesus showed up and went right to that person. There's, I mean, there's a whole message in this, but simply don't give up. That No matter how long it takes, the character of God is still good and kind. He's just and faithful and compassionate. Jesus showed up at the right time and brought healing to this man, this miraculous healing. But it's possible that we can experience his benefits 
and not really fully understand who he is. The Jews said, who did this? Verse 12. Verse 13 says, I have no idea. I have no idea. I'm glad for good starts. But we have to move beyond just the experience and the goodness of God. We have to grow in our faith and experience God, not just as the one who provides for us miraculously, but also the one who cares for us. So who is he to you? Verse 18 in the same passage says that the Jews were upset because they tried all the harder to kill Jesus. Not only that he was breaking the Sabbath, but even he was calling himself the son of God, that God was his father, making himself equal to God. That's the challenge. So the Jews got it, that he was saying he's equal to God. Who is he to you? Who is he to me? Is he savior only? Is he provider? Protector? Is he friend? Or is he Lord? Every generation needs to hear the stories of God's faithfulness. Every generation needs to hear the stories of God's great intervention. Psalm 145, verses 3 and 4 says, Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. His greatness no one can fathom. One generation commends to the next his works. They will tell of your mighty acts. Family stories are important. One generation tells the next. Uh, let me, I don't know you very well as a congregation. I'm getting to know you better, of course. But what a thing I do know about, about this congregation is that, is that it's a family church. And I, I've learned that there are some stories of God's faithfulness. I'm hearing some of those stories of how God has provided for you. And you just didn't show up here this morning and all this appeared out of nothing. Poof. There are stories of sacrifice, intervention, believing God, trusting God. Every generation needs to have its own stories. Great is the Lord. One generation commends your works to the next. Family stories give roots and security. Telling the stories of what God has done in your life gives roots and anchors your kids in the faith. One story is, I'll share with you briefly. When my kids were 12 and 14 years of age, our daughters, uh, we were pastoring in California at that time. My mother was quite sick, quite ill. We got a call from the doctor who was a family friend and said, Steve, you need to come home now. It was that call, the call no one wants to get. And it was, a, it was a Thursday evening, uh, as I remember. And so I called the elders on Friday morning and said, I need to go home and be with my mom. We're going to take the family. Not sure how this is going to go. And they said, go for it, Steve. Go be with your mom. And so I made arrangements. That was a Friday to fly out on a, on a Monday morning. And it was interesting that on Sunday as I got up to preach, I preached, you know, the uh, best message I could with a broken heart, you know, and uh, at the end of the service, I'm closing. One of the elders stood up and said, just before you close, Pastor Steve, we have something for you. And they gave me this envelope, this thick wadded envelope. Everybody knows what that is, right? With, with finances and money and check. I don't know. They gave me this envelope. It's here, this is for you. You didn't know it, but we went around and kind of took up a quiet secret offering to help cover some of your expenses for the trip. I was moved by that, deeply moved by that. So totally surprised. I mean, I'm crying. Someone else had to close the service because I couldn't. We go home and we're sitting at our table having lunch and the girls had brought friends home as well for lunch and they were there. And toward the end of the meal, my wife says, Steve, you know, curiosity. I wonder how much the offering was. I don't know. We're whispering back and forth. I said, I'll go, I'll go count it. So the kids were still at the table talking. I go in, into, into our bedroom actually and open up the envelope, count the money, and I was stunned. It was, it was exactly one dollar less than the exact amount 
that we needed for the trip. Dollars and cents. And cents, pennies. I'm just like, I'm emotional now. I come out and I, I come out the table. I said, guys, okay, hey guys, I need to tell you a story. God is so faithful. I just went and counted the money and it's, it's exactly what we need, less $1. At that moment, I went, ah, a scream. And one of the little girlfriends jump up and run. Odd behavior. When you hear a God story that they get up and run away. She came back waving a dollar bill. She said, I had to go to the washroom when they were taking the offering. <laughs> to the penny. To the penny. It's a God story. It's a family story of God's provision, his faithfulness. Every generation, we need to tell the family stories. I recently told that to our grandkids. But it's incredibly important that we do that because it anchors them in their faith. So important. But everyone needs their own God stories. Every generation needs to experience God for themselves. I have two kids going off to YWAM. One is in YWAM right now. The next one, which I just saw on Thursday evening, leave for YWAM in about a week and a half. I'm excited for their adventure. But you know what my prayer is? God, make yourself more than a word to them. Give them their own God stories, not just Papa's stories. They've heard my stories. They need to have their own. And that's what I want. I want God to become more than a word for all of us. Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 2 says, Lord, I have heard of your fame. I stand in all of your deeds. Renew them in our day, in our time. Make them known. Lord, in wrath, remember mercy. I think it's time for some new God stories. For every one of us. Jesus Christ, Hebrews 13, verse 9, is the same yesterday, today, and forever. If he did it yesterday, he can do it today. If he can do it today, he can do it tomorrow. If he did it in my life, he could do it in your life. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do you agree with me that it's time for some new God stories? That's what this series is about. Not only uh, believe is not just about what we know. It's about who we believe in. Again, who is he to you? I hope you take a, a step of faith with me over the course of these next few months. And along with the other speakers who will be sharing, I know that Daniel's speaking next week, on a journey to discover more about God. I want to wrap this with a quote. William Carey, who is reputed to be the father of the modern missions movement, he lived from 1761 to 1834. His life motto was this, expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. Attempt great things for God. That's my challenge to this church. It's my challenge to myself. We can, we can experience as much of God as we want, by the way. I gave, if I gave you the key to the Haagen-Dazs factory and said, any ice cream you want is yours, anytime. Or whatever your passion of choice is, I don't know. The Lynn Chocolate Factory, you fill in the blank. Whatever your passion is. You have the key, anytime, day or night. Take home as much as you want. Fill your car full of hog and dust. Give it to all your friends. But if you didn't take advantage of the opportunity, who is the one that's cheated? You have as much, and I have as much of God as I want. I want more. How about you? Expect great things from God. Attempt great things for God. May we know not only about him, but may we grow to know him better. Would you bow with me? I just want to simply pray 
a conclusion to this message. Lord, we, we pray along with the Apostle Paul who says this. He says, what is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Father, I pray that you who are the God, not just of history, but you're also the God who desires to be part of my story and our story. We invite you to come into this new season of our life. Would you write on the pages of our story, we pray. God, who is active and alive and real and present and omnipotent and kind and compassionate and just and faithful, write on the pages of our lives. I pray that every one of us would have some new God stories that are written over the top of our story, we pray in your name. Amen.